You are listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. guest today is Andrew Ewell, the author of the new novel, Set for Life. He's received fellowships from Yotto, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and VCCA France. His stories and essays have appeared in Salon, the Chattahoochee Review, Five Chapters, Tri-Quarterly, and others. He holds an MFA in creative writing from Boston University and taught creative writing at numerous other universities before writing Set for Life. On the show, we talked about autofiction, unnamed protagonists, unlikable characters, which these days seems to be a popular topic, keeping track, writing about academia, endings, and much more. And now for my talk with Andrew Ewell. So, Andrew, I'm so happy to talk with you. I should say I I found your book on NetGalley months ago and read it and had to have it. And then it came and I just read it again and loved it very much, very much, which is Oh, thank you. which is always a good thing. Enough about me though. Let's let's hear from you in terms of like how this book took form and um, you know, introduce set for life for our listeners. Yeah. So, um I mean, so the gist of it is the book sort of tracks a um college creative writing professor in a kind of dissipated downfall over uh just sort of a guy who's spiraling down um and uh and so along the way it sort of touches on various writers at various stages of success or failure um and sort of how artists of different sorts approach midlife and um and that sort of thing um you know the sort of the backstory of where the book came from is i spent most of my 30s teaching college and uh i left a tenure track teaching job and got divorced and sort of thought i was going to throw in the towel on the whole writing thing. It just, you know, it just sort of reached a point where it felt like, you know, this isn't coming together the way I thought it would. And uh, so I left teaching and not knowing what I was going to do next in my life. I started bartending at my parents' restaurant. My parents own a restaurant in Virginia. And I was like, okay, this is, I'll do this till I figure out what's next. You know, maybe I'll teach high school. Maybe I'll go to law school. I, God knows it could have been anything. Um, and anyway, as this was going on, I just sort of, I kept having these kind of ideas kept nagging at me. And, um, you know, I had a lot on my mind about, I just had a lot of thoughts swirling about writing, publishing, teaching, marriage, um, career, uh, life transitions, you know, these things were sort of high on my mind. And, um, and this guy kind of started talking in my head the way, you know, the way characters do. And 
uh, I don't know. And sort of before I know it, I found myself um, writing about this professor kind of struggling with some of the questions I had in my mind. And, um, and soon enough, I had some pages and I thought, all right, well, I thought I was going to give up on this stuff, but it's sort of a story was coming and I kept at it and um, showed a draft to a couple of friends. And then I, and sort of, that's kind of how it came together. Mm. So <clears throat> I love how the beginning of the book um, gets right into it. The narrator and Deborah are best friends with John and Sophie. Within the first few pages, um, the narrator and Sophie are in deep. I mean, I think, you know, the end of the first chapter, beginning of the second. Did the beginning of the story always go this way? As I recall, um... I mean, that's a good question. I mean, as far as I recall, it more or less came together at something like this pace and, you know, more or less the structure that you see on the page now. Um, I think I think I didn't expect to write so much about the college and campus life and that sort of stuff. I think I I think I heading into it i think um uh so for listeners who uh might not be familiar with the plot the narrator uh starts an affair with his friend's wife who's also his wife's friend and uh i think i thought you know in the early going um that that would take up a bigger part of the plot or I would spend more time in that world. And as I kept writing the college stuff, so he's sort of going back and forth between these two worlds through a lot of the book. Um, and anyway, as I kept writing the college stuff, it was just too fun to write. And it was, and I, I think there was a part of me that having told myself, okay, I'm, I'm leaving academia behind, I'm moving on to something else in my life. Um, I think I thought I had kind of a negative attitude about it, but it just turned out to be too fun and too funny. And um, so I guess that would be the way in which it turned out most unexpectedly for me. I found, I think, a lot more joy in writing about the just the, the odd creatures that inhabit English departments. Um, and yeah. So did you, so did you kind of barrel through the first draft or did you at some point come up with an outline or, or an ending? I mean, did you kind of know where you were going with this? Um, I knew that, uh, uh, I knew, so the narrator, his, uh, his family has a, uh, he comes from a family that has a motel, like a seaside motel in Florida. And it's sort of a thing he's been kind of running from, hiding from uh, most of his adult life. I knew at some point I wanted to get him down there. I didn't know how or when exactly, but I knew at some point that had to be part of it. Um, and I would say I probably got through maybe half of a rough draft before I realized I had to start putting down 
a firmer structure. Um, you know, I mean, there are writers who can get through a whole novel without, a, <laughs> you know, without a plan. And I'm not one of them. Um, I, the way it goes for me is I, I probably, I would say I can get 50, 60 in this book. Maybe I got to maybe a hundred pages before I had to step back and figure out where the hell this thing was going. Um, for me, it's partly, you know, it's partly having, um, kind of a reason to sit down at the desk tomorrow. You know, I, I sort of, it gets, you can ride on enough momentum from just kind of figuring out these characters and finding the tone and writing into it and figuring out, you know, figuring things out that way. But for me, at some point, it gets to this sort of stage in the composition where I have to decide what's going to happen next, or I'm just, I'll let it go. And I won't, I won't sit down and do the work. Well, and your protagonist, I don't think he's ever named. Is he ever named? He's not. Why is that? Um, I think, you know, I, well, okay. I mean, I guess I'll give you two answers. The glib answer would be, I just never got around to it, which is partly true. I mean, you know, I mean, there, there kind of has to be an occasion to um, a point when you name a first person narrator, because you, you know, someone has to say it or it has to come up or he has to introduce himself that way to the reader. And none of those things ever happen to come up in, in the writing. And then also at a certain point, I think I made a decision about, um, about the extent to which I wanted to kind of play into readers' expectations of a kind of auto-fiction-y kind of thing. You know, I it was my intention to kind of play with some of that stuff to kind of write, if not a send-up of the auto-fictional novel, then at least kind of to play with some of the tropes. And so um, leaving the narrator unnamed, uh, I suppose it was also a choice that kind of helped to um, to tease that element a little bit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so most of the characters are writers and they're, you know, along those lines, there's a lot of discussion about including real life in fiction. And yeah. you spend some of your childhood on the water, right? On a sailboat, I guess you were raised partially on a sailboat. Yeah. And your protagonist is raised near the water in Florida. And so I wonder if you could say more about that. Like, how close do you feel to the narrator? How close, I mean, first person, you are the narrator. I mean, you're not, you're you're you, you're the writer, but you know, you're so close. And the the reader is in, it's not, it's not present tense. So the reader isn't exactly in the narrator's shoes, but close, right? So maybe talk about that a bit because. You know, I think first person narrators, it's hard to, um, it can be hard to separate the narrator from the writer. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'll say I always, I really like those novels that feel like a conversation. Um, I like that, uh, you know, I, I like the feeling of a, 
the guy on the next bar stool telling you, here's, let me tell you how it went. And, uh, and so that was definitely the tone I was going for in this book or something close to that. Um, as I said, I was also, uh, you know, I was also interested in writing about some subjects that were familiar to me from life. Um, but I think as is probably the case for anyone who's attracted to fiction as opposed to memoir or, um, you know, or even journalism or anything like that. I think, I think for most of us, there's no matter how much you might be interested in exploring things in your own life or subjects or themes that are relevant to your own life. Um, I think most of us who lean towards fiction probably have a better time getting to the truth of the matter through some mask or by being able to kind of, I don't want to say it's hiding behind that mask, but it's, you know, I, I think it's not unlike what a lot of actors talk about and that sort of feeling of being able to inhabit a inhabit a mind that is not your own in order to get closer to what it is that you think about that subject. So in some ways, this narrator is kind of that for me. I think he's, you know, I mean, I think I've said to people, he's sort of like, um, you know, he's like sort of a Zuckerman to me or something like that. He's sort of, he's a little, a little bit Frank Bascom to me. If you want to, you know, what I pick your, you know, pick your, your surrogate narrator. Um, you know, in that way, I'd say he's kind of maybe 10, 15% off from the guy who wrote the book, you know? Um, uh, and in terms of set, I mean, you were asking about, uh, the, the Florida, the seaside motel and that sort of thing. I mean, so there's a good point. I mean, I didn't grow up in Florida and I didn't grow up. Well, I mean, I did a little bit sometimes, but um, not for the most part. And I didn't grow up in a motel, but I lived a lot of my early life on a sailboat. Uh, once we made it to land, uh, I, uh, my dad worked in a boat yard. So I spent a lot of time in a marina. And uh, those were just sort of memories and images that translated pretty easily to the page in this, again, in a way that's maybe 10, 12%, you know, off from reality. Mm -hmm. So writing in the first person, do you, do you worry at all? Or are you concerned at all um, with readers who identify the narrator with you too much you know is that a concern I mean I think I think in third person <clears throat> there's more distance right I mean you you know it's like well it's third person it you know I'm not thinking of the writer in first person I'm thinking of the writer when and I love first person so I'm like well how much is of this is the writer how much of this is not the writer and is the writer concerned with me thinking this might be them? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there are readers who are always going to commit that fallacy, right? I mean, some people just can't shake it. And there's nothing I can do about that. Um, as far as I'm concerned or have, 
uh, you know, I, I don't know. As far as I'm concerned about readers uh, in general mistaking the narrator for the author, um, I think I kind of, or my intention anyway, was to sort of anticipate that and address it, uh, you know, ahead of ahead of the game. Um, you know, I mean, I don't want to, uh, without spoiling anything, uh, I think readers, when they finish the book, will kind of understand what I'm talking about. Um, you know, there's there's definitely an element that consciously addresses that problem or that question. Um, and as I said before, I kind of enjoyed toying with that, uh, that question, toying with, you know, kind of drawing in the reader who wants to say, or wants to ask, did this really happen? Is this, is this you? Um, and I suppose, so I suppose it doesn't concern me so much as I kind of enjoyed playing with it, at least on the page. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see in my actual life what the consequences are. Well, you mentioned uh, Philip Roth's Suckerman character and, and Richard Ford's Bascom. Are they your influences? Are those writers your influences? Well, um, I mean, sure. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say in as much as it's my, in as much as I'm able to identify what is an influence to me. Uh, I mean, I can certainly say what I like, but I, you know, did it influence me? I don't know, but I would say probably, probably anything published under the vintage contemporaries imprint is probably an influence. I mean, that's what I grew up reading. Um, uh, you know, when I, you know, if I had to identify a sort of aha moment as a reader, um, it was probably when my uh, late aunt uh, gave me a copy of that, um, you know, the, the Tobias Wolf edited uh, vintage book of contemporary American short stories, right? That one with the American flag cover. Uh, and that was, I don't know, I, that was probably 10th grade or something. And uh, I mean, oh man, I mean, I tore that thing apart. And so, um, I think Rock Springs must have been in that collection too, as I recall. Um, so anyway, so, you know, that sort of opened up a lot of, you know, a lot of doors for me as a reader. And so that certainly took me down a path, you know, the inevitable path towards sort of uh, back towards post-war American fiction, which would include Roth, you know, obviously. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, Richard Ford, Roth, um, uh, I loved Robert Stone's novels. I mean, those were definitely an influence. Um, and I also, you know, I have to say in terms of Roth, I really, the thing that I kind of, I don't know if there's something I took away from Roth or learned from Roth, it's just, it's that you can be serious and you can be funny and sometimes in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, I just think that's one of the pleasures of reading and one of the you know pleasures of writing as opposed to other narrative forms. It's just there's a that play with language, I think, allows, um, you know, allows you to kind of explore things in a in a sincere and 
deep and intellectual way without losing that, you know, without losing a sense of humor. Mm. How did you find your way to writing? When did that happen? Um, you know, I mean, I was always one of those arty kids. I always sort of liked, you know, I always sort of did creative things. Um, books were always around. My parents weren't writers and they, and, but, uh, you know, my earliest memories living on this sailboat that we've mentioned, there's really nothing to do, but <laughs> things having to do with books or make drawings, you know, you could do that. But I mean, there's no TV, there was no, I mean, this is, you know, the early 1980s. There were, we didn't even have GPS yet. So it was, I mean, we were out there alone a lot. Um, and I was an only child. So it just sort of, you know, reading became a big part of my life. And I think like, um, like a lot of people who become artists of any sort, uh, I think I had an instinct to want to kind of imitate early on, you know, you read things and then you kind of want to do that yourself. And, um, you know, so that was, I suppose that was sort of the way into it. Um, I remember, you know, I guess I started to sort of take it seriously in as much as you can take anything seriously when you're a teenager, but, uh, I started to take it seriously, you know, like the beginning years of high school, I went to the UVA young writers workshop and, um, you know, I probably took it too seriously. Um, but yeah, I just, from about then on, I think I was always kind of thinking in stories and had an interest in trying to write them down and learn how to do it better and learn how to read the things that would help to do it better. Why do you say you maybe took it too seriously? Oh, I, cause you know, the stuff that you write when you're a kid, it's, oh, it's I mean, it would be, it's embarrassing, right? I mean, every, every teenager takes themselves too seriously. That's just the nature of that age. Um, I mean, God, I would say even probably, I don't even know that I wrote anything that I wouldn't be embarrassed by until I was in my thirties. Interesting. So you also have written um, short stories and essays. Yeah. And I'm curious then in terms of, you know, the novel, like what do short stories and essays serve for you? Are they, uh, is there, I mean, what do you enjoy the most? Do you enjoy writing longer fiction? Was the book sort of a culmination of the time writing short fiction? Um, well, I wrote two novels before this one, and they uh, and they didn't get published. And uh, you know, I mean, looking at them now, I would say they're pretty good apprentice novels, and I. Uh, will be glad for no one to ever <laughs> see them. Uh, but I think, you know, I learned how to write a novel by writing them. Um, you know, and that's one thing I would say, I, you know, you can read as much as you want. You can read every craft book. You can read every great novel. Um, but I, I really, I'm not sure there's a way to learn how to do it well without doing it mm -hmm. and, and failing at it enough times to figure <laughs> out what you did wrong. And um, so that's sort of how I came to this book. Um, 
and by the time I, you know, by the time I got to work on it, I feel like I was, um, you know, I'd spent almost 10 years working on novel length fiction. And I, you know, had a pretty good sense of what I was doing, um, you know, in terms of structure, pace, rhythm, um, you know, narration, reflection, et cetera. Um, I, you know, I've written a couple of short stories in the last however many years. Um, it's just, it's not something these days that I think of very often. Uh, I don't, I just don't, ideas for short stories just don't pop into my head very often anymore. Uh, much more often it, the kind, the kinds of things that maybe once upon a time would have, uh, turned into a story more often now become either set pieces for long fiction or a, uh, a character element for a character that I hadn't realized I wanted to kind of think about more that, that sort of thing. Um, and I actually, you know, I mean, I actually kind of think that short stories and novels are maybe almost as different as prose and poetry. I, I actually, you know, I mean, since you asked this question, it's a really interesting question. But I mean, if I had to sit down and write a short story right now today, uh, I think I would find it nearly as difficult or intimidating or difficult. Uh, unknown to me as if you asked me to write a poem it would be i would be baffled <laughs> and essays that's just a different side of the brain i think it's analytical it's um you're trying to solve a problem um that i find pretty easy to do it's just you know it's homework mm -hmm. at well, least the kind of essays that i write Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned pacing a few minutes ago, and I thought Set for Life just had excellent pacing. Um, usually, I think novels are too long, and I find myself skipping, you know, like, you know, I start doing the speed reading thing. And I didn't do that at all with Set for Life. It's just like every moment was pretty perfect. Um, so I'm curious in terms of your process then of revision like how much did you leave out or how much did you go through it and and did you have to tighten it up or leave characters out or leave leave out scenes I mean how did that all go for you yeah that's yeah I mean that's a great question um let's see well okay I mean yeah there was there's a lot of material that got left on the cutting room floor um, before I, you know, before I gave a draft to my agent. Uh, so like when it was just my thing still. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say, I guess my instinct is uh, when I'm reading through, I guess my instinct is to ask of almost every, every moment, every line, does this have to be here? Uh, and if it doesn't feel like it has to be there, if it doesn't feel like it's really driving forward, then I, then I get rid of it. Um, I think, you know, I will say, I think that would have been a harder thing to do. I, I'm almost certain it probably was a harder thing for me to do when I was younger. Uh, this is maybe one of the benefits of just writing a lot of pages that never see the light of day. 
you realize it's just a thing you wrote one time and you'll come up with something else. Um, so yeah, I mean, so I, I would say my instinct is probably to write more and cut more than to write less and add more later. Before we bring Andrew back on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. A few dollars a month helps us to continue bringing this show to you. We have perks for patrons, the schedule of guests, an invitation to give us questions for upcoming guest authors and agents, prompts and writing tips, and much more. You can also help the show by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you will find books by authors who've been on the show, as well as other books we like and recommend. And now more with Andrew Yule. Okay, so the narrator is on a panel where writers are discussing fiction, and he says, real art shows us the ugliness of life, the cruelty, the reality, the way it is. And then at the end of the panel, they're standing around at the buffet and students are not asking kind of profound questions, but they're asking about agents and NaNoWriMo and online writing classes. And, and all, that panel, all of that seems to be an interesting commentary on the state of writing, publishing, and, and on competitiveness in academia. And I wondered if that was your point with that scene or what you wanted to come out of that. I, I thought it was pretty wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a scene that I, it's a, it was one of the more difficult scenes uh, to write. Um, I felt like I had to find, and this will get back to your question about the author narrator uh, dichotomy, but um, I felt like on the one hand, the narrator at that point is pretty low and he's kind of, he's sort of a jaded guy anyway. And so in terms of character and in terms of plot, it was important to me that he kind of, that this panel be an occasion for him to sort of spew some bile and, you know, and, and show the state that he's in. On the other hand, uh, I didn't want his mood and, and what he says to be, um, to be taken to be, you know, a statement from the author. Right. But I also didn't want him to say something that I thought was stupid or not true or whatever. Right. So you understand the kind of balance I'm, I was trying to get in that scene. Um, I mean, I suppose I do think that there's a lot of unnecessary competition in the publishing world and in the uh, academic world. And, and I guess also I would say the creative writing world, you can't see me, but I'm putting quotes around <laughs> that. Um, that's a different thing than the publishing world, right? I mean, the publishing world is is a commercial enterprise that takes place in New York. And the creative writing world is this kind of strange uh, sort of cottage industry that exists on college campuses and at conferences across the country. And you meet people in these places at various stages of their career, at various, um, you know, 
stages of kind of success, fame, infamy, etc. And so I think as much as anything that scene at the panel was my attempt to kind of encapsulate some of that. I mean, you have a one of the writers on the panel was hugely successful for a kind of infamous essay a few years earlier, and now she's kind of fallen out of favor as a result. Uh, and the other guy on the panel is, is sort of, you know, one of these new tech kind of pioneers of, of um, you know, social media writing and stuff. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that as much as anything kind of philosophical about the nature of writing, that was my interest in that scene, was just trying to show cross-section of these characters at, in, in that milieu. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also discussion in the book about, um, among the narrator's students, um, about unlikable characters. And, and there's a focus on Jane Austen's Emma, I think. Yeah. Um, and in general, in fiction these days, there's such a focus on unlikable characters, you know, like, ah, that character's unlikable, or that can't read that. And it's just like, what is that? Like, why do people, why do readers have trouble with unlikable characters? I mean, should we love everybody? Like in your book, who I found unlikable really was the Deborah character. But that was fine. I mean, I still, it didn't make me want to go away from the book. It just, it's like, yeah, she's, she'd be difficult. She'd be a difficult one to uh, be with. And him, I didn't, I mean, I just really thought he was complicated and a little lost, you know, which was fine. He no longer loves his wife. So he's going to, you know, he's looking for love. He's looking for companionship anyway. I've just, I don't know what I'm asking here, but um, I guess it's just like unlikable characters is such an obsession with character and, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear you say all that, by <laughs> the way, uh, because I think there will be plenty of readers, I'm sure, <laughs> who do not like this narrator and do not see him as lost or in a difficult marriage or uh, those things. Um, I tend to take your point of view. I think my goal was to portray all of the characters in this book as somewhere on this spectrum of, you know, lost and found and um, some, you know, more or less than others. Yeah. I mean, the likability thing, I don't know if that's come from this internet age, maybe if it's come from social media likes and things like that, and this kind of constant need to be liked or something, and people want to identify in some way with characters, and they don't want to think of themselves as unlikable. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm speculating. But yeah, that's a question that I find totally bizarre. I don't know why you would even go to fiction if you didn't want to explore messy characters with complicated um, feelings. And I mean, I, I forget exactly how he said it, but there's somewhere in Chekhov's letters, he says something great about uh, that the writer's, the writer's duty is to the condemned, not to the prosecutor, right? Something to that effect. And I mean, that's always, I've always been more attracted to characters who uh, 
were, you know, got the short end of the stick or perceived themselves to have the short end of the stick. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I suspect if we look back at the at the best novels, the most enjoyable, the most interesting characters, they they tend to be they tend to be interesting, but not necessarily likable. And those are two very different things. Um, I mean, another way that I like to think about it, as I said earlier, I, I really I was kind of going for that tone in this book of a guy telling you a story, right? Let me tell you what happened. The, mm -hmm. the guy from the, from the next bar stool over, as it were. Um, and, you know, so when anyway, when I think of, you know, conversations you have in real life with people, uh, I don't think you're usually drawn to the nicest, kindest person in the room. You're drawn to the person who's the smartest or the funniest or who has the best tale to tell. Uh, and they may be a liar. They may be a scoundrel. Uh, but if they have something interesting to say and a, and a new way of saying it, that's who you're going to stand there talking with. Hmm. Well, and I mentioned Deborah, and um, the narrator complains that writing is, isn't fun, but Deborah's having fun. <laughs> She'll write with like the TV on and life is buzzing on around her. And I mean, that's extremely unlikable, right? <laughs> because who does that? You know, who gets anything done that way? And she does. Um, so many different characters here. Chet Land, I think, is one. And he's, you know, he's a case. John, the um, Sophie's husband, just takes their their affair in stride. He's like, yeah, well, she likes, you know, she gets too hot. Leave the leave the window open. And where did John come from? Yeah, well, I mean, as I said, I was I was trying to, um, as I kept writing into the story of the narrator. I mean, that was sort of the the genesis of it. It's sort of all. Um, grew out of the environment that I found him moving in. Um, and I guess I would say I had, you know, the the aim was to have as many characters as I could at as many different points on that kind of spectrum of, of lost and found, as I said, but also specifically their relationship to writing, their relationship to art generally. And so if there's Deborah, the narrator's uh, very successful wife on one end of the spectrum that is uh, happy in her success, um, writing all the time, whether she means anything by it or not, uh, that's one end of the spectrum. Then there's John at the total other end, who's, who's uh, you know, was once upon a time very talented, uh, and has sort of given up on all of it and become uh, and found a kind of a strange, the way I see it anyway, he's found a strange kind of bliss in his jaded um, disenfranchisement from art and uh, and writing. And so those are two, you know, I imagine those two as figures on pretty opposite ends. Um, and then everyone else kind of somewhere in between those. But yeah, I mean, John was a really fun character to write, I'll say, because it was a chance to just say and do things that you don't do in real life. Um, so, or most of us don't, but um, yeah. 
So what about, um, I don't, I don't want to uh, really give away the ending, but endings I think are hard, almost as hard as beginnings. And it ends on such a great note. And I wondered how that ending, I mean, did you have to futz with the ending forever to get it right? Or, you know, were there other endings and then you're like, oh, that's not right. That's not right. How'd that go? Well, the, the ending ending, if that's what you're talking about, came pretty easily. It came pretty easy, pretty fast, but only after a lot of work put into the, um, you know, kind of the, the last act. Um, mm -hmm. So it was more, it was more like kind of getting the last act down got me to an ending that seemed inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, I'm saying that now, a couple of years after writing it. And so it's probably, <laughs> I mean, it's probably, I'm probably making it sound like it came more quickly and more easily than it did, but that's the way I recall it. Um, but I like what you said about, I mean, endings being as, you know, as difficult as beginnings. Um, I suppose I kind of thought of this ending. I mean, it's sort of hard to speak in the abstract about this, but um, I suppose I kind of imagined this ending as the, as just a hint of a new beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's sort of, that tends to be kind of how I think of stories generally. Um, you know, uh, the short story, I think kind of distills that narrative structure down, you know, a short story often ends on a sort of, on a note of ambivalence that nevertheless hints at, um, you know, at a character's potential for some new start. Mm -hmm. and he, no matter how, no matter how, uh, you know, small or trivial that new start might be. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of really hate it when, when I hear about redemptive endings, it's like, oh no, don't, you know, don't write a redemptive ending. And yet it was kind of, I mean, there's like that moment. I mean, it was just enough where, there's a little bit of, there's a glimmer of hope. And that's really all I wanted. I mean, I didn't even care about that, but when it happened, I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's the right note to, to end on. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'm glad to hear it worked <laughs> for you anyway. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I don't, uh, the, the book is, uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's not strictly a comedy, but it's certainly not a tragedy. And, you know, comedies end in marriage and tragedies end in death. And uh, <laughs> I did, you know, I, it wasn't going to end in either of those extremes, but uh, but a, a nudge towards the redemptive side of things, if only just a small nudge seemed more appropriate to me than taking this guy. I felt like I'd already taken him pretty low. And if I got him any further, it, it would lose. I thought it would lose the the comic touch. Yeah, no, it was kind of perfect the way you ended. Um, do you have readers before it goes to your agent? Um, for Yeah, well, yeah, for this book, I had two readers. I had uh, my wife and uh, a, f a friend who's a writer um, 
who's read almost everything I've written and vice versa, sort of a first round reader. So uh, those two read it and then, and gave me some good notes. And then I got it off to my agent. And uh, then he and I went over a couple small-ish rounds of revisions. And, uh, and that was sort of how it came together. And, you know, the moving parts, like there's a lot of moving parts uh, in a novel, right? I mean, there's like all this stuff to keep track of. How do you keep track? I mean, do you have, do you keep Excel spreadsheets or notebooks or things on your wall or is it all in your head? Like, how are you keeping track of it all? Uh, I don't have any spreadsheets. Um, sometimes I make note cards and uh put them around and that never really seems to work but i kind of think it will and uh more often than not it turns out to be a kind of procrastination tool where i think i'm writing but i'm not uh and i take a lot of notes just on a like yellow legal pad just to remember if a line comes into my head or a detail or something just basically just as a, as a memory tool. Um, in terms of like plot and structure though, I mean, I think as I said before, after, I don't know, maybe a third of the book or something, after I'd gotten about that far into a first draft, I felt like I had to figure out where it was going. Um, so that's when I start kind of taking notes and that's when the note cards come out. And then I, kind of throw those away and I um, maybe I'll type up what looks like an outline, like just in word. I mean, it, you know, it looks, it looks kind of like what an outline for a academic paper would be or something. Hmm. And uh, you know, there's a and one a and, you know, et cetera. And then I'll do that and go over that and revise that and think, okay, well, this doesn't work and that doesn't work. And I have to move this here. And then eventually I've done enough of, all of this stuff that I have a pretty good idea of it in my head. And then I don't write it down anymore. And I just write the book and have in mind where it's going. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably easier to do. It's probably easier to do it in that ad hoc fashion when you're writing a, you know, um, a novel told from one perspective. Um, you know, if, if all the characters in this book had their own point of view, it uh, probably, I'd probably have to find a different method. Would have been a different book, huh? Yeah, would have been a different book. Uh, I'm not sure it would have been a book that would have gotten written either by mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I kind of, yeah, I was just going to say, I kind of, I just liked talking in the voice of this character mm -hmm. and I liked, um, and, that tone and his kind of sense of the world uh, that kept me moving forward as much as anything. Mm. Well, we always talk about the title, well, always a lot of the time, titles of books and covers and set for life and a beautiful cover, you know, this beautiful blue cover. Talk about that, first of all, the title and and then the cover and if you had input on the cover or are you happy with the cover and all that yeah yeah i love the cover um 
I'll start with the title. Uh, the title, the the title that I submitted the book with was it was was one of the first things my editor said. I mean, before we even agreed to work together, he was like, "We got to change this title," mm -hmm. um, which was fine, uh, and I was happy to do it, but. Coming up with a title for this book was a real merry-go-round between uh, me, my agent, my editor, my wife. It was just like, what? And a big question was, okay, the title, if we go, you know, with something serious and literary, then we're going to have to punch up certain elements in the book to match it, right? It tells, it it presents a certain kind of story or it gives the reader a certain expectation. Mm -hmm. um, if we go too comic, then it, uh, then we're going to have to press too hard on the satirical stuff and then it becomes another kind of book. So finding that middle ground was really difficult and we went over and over and over so many, I mean, you know, email chains going back and forth with 20, 30 <laughs> titles to the point that none of us could hear any of them fresh. And uh, and then Set for Life uh, just seemed to, I think I came up with that, or I think I drew it out of a line in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, it just seemed to strike the right balance. It seemed ironic enough it seemed appropriate to this narrator's um sense of himself and uh it seemed to me a funny title for a book about a character's kind of um <laughs> you know his struggle his downfall his dissipation um and yeah and so then finding a cover that suited that title and that suited the uh tone of the book was also we were going for you know trying to match that balance um you know i mean i think it's a very funny book but i also hope that readers find it moving and you know find um you know can invest in the characters and have a, a um you know affectionate feelings for them and and that sort of stuff so finding a cover that matched that was also tough. Um, I mean, so again, we went through, I mean, uh, maybe 30 mock-ups and then maybe another 10 or 12 or 15, like, you know, pretty close to finished uh, options. And some of them just seemed too, some of them seemed too literary, you know, like things with uh pen and ink like images and stuff like that some seemed too boozy uh with like martini glasses on the cover and uh some seemed too kind of whatever this the genre of like hip romance is now i'm not sure what you'd call that but that some of them seemed to skew too close to that and then uh and then we saw a version of what this became and it was just so simple and it was and i loved that there's a little kind of sh there's like a man at the bottom 
standing in a kind of shadow of the title of the book. And I just thought without being too heavy handed, that just perfectly captured what I meant the book to be about um, a guy kind of, you know, a guy in the shadow of his own ambitions and, um, and kind of the weight of what happens when those, you know, ambitions um, start to pull you down. And yeah, so I'm totally jazzed about the cover. I love it. I think it's yeah. perfect. It's great. great. Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> really is. Okay, before we go, I wonder if you have any um, advice or uh, pearls of wisdom for our listeners who may be working their way through a novel or battling a novel? It is sometimes battling. That's true. Yeah. Um, I would say, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I would say this, what I'm about to say is kind of hard to implement, I think, or hard to know if you're implementing it appropriately. But my experience at doing this a couple of times and not, you know, not doing very well at it until I think I kind of figured out how to do better at it. Um, my experience kind of tells me that it's really hard to move forward in something as difficult and long as a novel without being seriously and sincerely interested in what you're writing about. Whether anyone else is going to like it or not, whether anyone else thinks your subject is interesting, whether or not it's fashionable or whatever, you have to be interested in it or you're just going to have no reason to keep going. And, you know, for most of us, it takes a couple of years to write a book. And, um, uh, you know, then if you happen to sell it, it's going to be a couple more years before it gets published. And it's going to be, you're going to have to keep talking about it. And, you know, and if you're not, if, if you don't have a sustained interest in your subject and in the characters you invent and in, uh, you know, and if you don't have a way to remain curious about it, it's just going to be really difficult. So I don't know how you would implement that, except, you know, to kind of check in with yourself and say, do I really want to do I really want to talk about this or do I really want to explore this character or am I doing it for, you know, any number of other reasons that people write things like, I don't know, uh, attention or an, an imagined celebrity or whatever it may be. But, um, you know, my feeling is that at the end of the day, it's just you and it's a page. And if you, if your mind can't stay interested in the subject or, um, you know, probably time to probably time to take a different tack. Hmm. That's great what, advice, actually. Yeah. I mean, because we get hung up on the marketplace and trends and is my character likable? I mean, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, continue. I mean, I will say, you know, to, I mean, to maybe clarify my point, I think uh, one of the things I learned from writing a couple of novels that didn't quite come together and then writing one that I feel did. Um, you know, I think one of the things I learned from that is that if you're, you know, it's a real straitjacket to be thinking about other people's expectations and to be thinking about what other people uh, 
are interested in or what they want to read about and to think, oh, I have to write about this because this is, you know, what so-and-so or this type of reader might be interested in. And so the sooner you can get rid of whatever you want to call that, that self-awareness, that self-consciousness, the more you can kind of, you know, check that stuff at the door until it has a practical application, as in you're giving it to your first round readers or, um, you know, or it's about to be published or something like that. You know, anyway, as long as you can stay in that, whatever that zone is, that kind of ego-free zone of letting yourself try something out because you find it interesting. The longer you can stay there, probably the better it's going to go. That's great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This is awesome. This is so much fun. Best of luck with this novel too. I loved it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. That was novelist Andrew Yule. His book is set for life. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our patrons patrons, um, at Patreon who help make this show possible. I also have a Substack page called Pen on Fire where I talk about writing and include more from authors and agents who've been on the show. Thank you to Travis Barrett who does our music and sound editing and by the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. Travis also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive of shows, many years worth, many hundreds upon hundreds of shows at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Bye.